We continue this morning in 1 Peter with chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the New Testament lesson that was just read. To get the context here right, it's important to recap the broader flow of this section of the book. What's happening is Peter is, is speaking about how Christians, Christian exiles, often poor, harassed, how they are to live beautiful lives, lives of genuinely free people, lives of the slaves of Christ. Those kind of lives are to be lived before the eyes of the watching world, indeed, in this case, an often hostile world. And this means, Peter says, this means all are to be subject to every human institution, every human creature, to honor the emperor even, indeed, to honor everyone. And we saw last week that without approving of Greco-Roman slavery, nevertheless, Christian household servants are to be subject even to unreasonable masters. And to this suffering, the church is called in imitation of Christ himself. He is the paradigm, the prime example of subjecting himself to unjust authority without retaliation, without threats. Authority which, in fact, he is lord over, but in humility freely submits to, places himself under it. And so in his, Christ's, subjection to injustice, he's both a pattern, a sketch, an example for us, and he's the one who alone bears away our sins. The one whose wounds heal us enabling us to die to sin and to live unto righteousness, to live as free people then in this new order of the church. So that's what Peter's doing. And with that background then, we'll make two points. They're there on the insert in your bulletin. Wives in the first six verses and then husbands in verse seven. So first then, wives. The text begins, wives... In the same way, notice that, in the same way, you'll notice that is the sermon title. It connects what is happening right here to all that I just said in the introduction. In the same way that Christ suffered, in the same way that household servants have to bear up under unreasonable masters, in the same way. Wives are now told to submit themselves to their own husbands. Now, a few important things to note here. Um, Just like I mentioned last week with slaves, Peter's not discoursing, discoursing here on marriage in general. Just like last week, he wasn't really discoursing on Greco Roman slavery. He doesn't say anything in this text about creation or about hierarchy. He doesn't use the word for authority. As with the case last week with household servants, he's accepting the situation on the ground without approving all the Greco-Roman notions of exactly how husbands and wives should relate. In fact, 
Just as the New Testament does with slavery, we will see that Peter is undermining some, if not much, of the ancient notions of patriarchy. So it's very important to see this. He is a pastor, first and foremost. He's dealing with Christian women and their witness to the gospel on the ground in a culture where they had no options or very, very few options and where they were often treated with contempt. So, the first thing to note here is that Peter speaks directly to the wives. Now, that may seem simple to us and unimportant, but it's actually a revolutionary act. The the ancient world had these collections of ethical teachings which would describe the duties of households and even extended households. They're, They're called household codes. There's a few of them in the New Testament. Right? And everybody in their different stations in life would have their duties described. But in those codes, right, the person that the culture viewed as inferior, say the wife or the slave or the child, they were never addressed. Right? They're not really fully persons. They don't need to be addressed. Masters, husbands, fathers, they were addressed. No one else mattered. But in the New Testament, here and in Ephesians and in Colossians, right, the New Testament not only addresses, not only speaks directly to what was considered the inferior party, but it addresses them first. That's a kind of subtle literary subversion of Greco-Roman hierarchy. This is a way of acknowledging. It's a way of putting out front the personhood, the significance, and the moral agency of the wife. Wives first, then later husbands. So wives, in the same way, meaning after the model of Christ, submit yourself to your own husbands. Notice, the wife is called here to imitate Christ. This text is not the same as the Ephesians text, where the wife is placed in the role analogous to the church. Here, the wife imitates Christ directly. And to submit here means to place oneself under, or to defer, or to honor, or to show respect. And it's done freely. Submit yourself. It's a free act. And it's not the same as obey. Right? In the other codes, children are told to obey. Household servants are told to obey. Wives are told to to place themselves under freely. Now, if we look at this text, it becomes clear that many of these women, right, converts to Christianity as they are, right, these many of these women have unbelieving husbands. Unbelieving husbands. They are to submit, the text says, so that if any of their husbands do not obey the word, meaning obey the gospel, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives. So, so why are wives to place themselves in a position of deference here? Right? Peter makes no argument, as I said, no argument for, there's no argument from creation in the text. There's no argument about the unilateral hierarchy in marriage. He simply says this. Your submission 
Your submission, which the culture would demand and expect anyway, will advance the gospel with your unbelieving husband. A gospel which, in fact, does and shall alter the conception of submission. So it's important to grasp this. Witness to the pagan world. Witness is the whole concern of this section. It's dominated by a concern for the, for the propagation, the progress of the gospel. Now, one might ask, if husbands had such total dominant control of wives in this world, why would Peter even need to say this? I mean, who wouldn't believe this in the ancient world? Well, we do know, right? We do know that the, the way women were treated in the church caused them to flock to it in great numbers. Right? Because there and nowhere else, women were treated as sisters, as equals in Christ, as part of a community in which the distinction between male and female and slave and free and Jew and Greek and all these Greco-Roman ordered hierarchies was broken down in a new unity. And they were treated as priests and kings and they had full access to the sanctuary of their God. They had all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. Right? Paul makes this astonishing statement in Galatians 3. You are all sons of God. The women in the church are sons of God, meaning you have the male inheritance rights. You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Many of these women have been given the gift of prophecy to speak the word of God. And so they flock to Christ. They flock to the church as a place of great liberation. This has been documented by many scholars of the early church. Nevertheless, Peter says, they are still to submit. Even to unbelieving husbands. Their their new status in Christ does not eliminate this need. Now, this submission, it goes without saying, is never, ever absolute. And it never, ever, ever justifies remaining in a violent or abusive situation. Ever. And just how relative this submission is, is something which I think is easily overlooked here. And it's this. It's this. This is important to understand this passage, I think. In the Roman world, the wife would automatically without question, adopt the husband's religion, as would the whole household. And that is not happening here. Right? The wife is, and the wife will remain a Christian. And in fact, it's just because that's not happening that Peter has to address the situation. So there's a deep blow here to the heart of the Greco-Roman conception of patriarchy. If you want to get the situation, something akin to what Peter's facing, imagine a woman who converts to Christ in the Muslim world. Right? You would understand the sensitivity now of the situation she's in, breaking with the household God. And you would appreciate then, I think, how deftly Peter handles this situation. Because what we have here is we have a radical disagreement at the heart of the marriage. 
Right? This woman is not embracing the husband or the household gods. So we might say this. The wife is not, and indeed cannot, submit on what is perhaps the most important thing to her husband and to the household and to the social significance of the household. It's quite remarkable, right? Imagine a woman who goes to her husband and says, Honey, I will submit to you on everything except that which is the absolute most important thing for you in life and in society. People often forget this. They focus on Peter's command to submit, and they miss the overarching context. This also, by the way, tells us something important. It tells us that if submission just meant obedience, just meant unilateral obedience, she would not be submissive. Right? It is better than to see submission as freely placing oneself under, as deference and respect and honor, even when one disagrees. Right? God alone is Lord of the conscience. God alone gets obedience in all things. Now, now back to the matter at hand. Wives freely place themselves under to win or to convert their husbands, even without a word. Which, of course, doesn't mean that they never speak. It just means that their example will be prominent. Augustine, in his uh, Confessions, tells this lovely story about his mother, Monica. He's, he's speaking as he is throughout the book. He's praying to the Lord. And he says of his mother, she served her husband, submitting to him, and did all she could to win him to you, speaking to him of you by her conduct, by which you made her beautiful. It's as if Augustine is drawing on this very section of First Peter, isn't it? by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. She gained him for you. One is reminded of Francis Assisi's quip, which can be easily misused, but is apt here. Preach the gospel to everyone. If necessary, use words. Sometimes we talk too much. Bearers of the beautiful life don't have to babble. Pontificate less, love more. The husband, verse 2 says, will see the purity and the reverence, the respectful, pure demeanor of of the wives. These are virtues, by the way, purity and reverence, to which all of us are called, right? In chapter 1, Peter says, we are to be holy even as God is holy. Right? That's purity. And then he goes on and says, we are to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our exile. That's reverence. So then Peter speaks of the wife's beauty and here he's, he's contrasting, he's not prohibiting. And the contrast he makes is between outer beauty, and he, he speaks of the cultural styles of high Roman society, which perhaps women in these churches might attempt to imitate, but very few could afford. 
because these were poorer churches. He's contrasting that with interior beauty. What he calls the imperishable or unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, if you're reading 1 Peter carefully, you'll make this connection. Oh, unfading beauty. He said at the very opening of the book, we have an unfading inheritance kept in heaven. This interior unfading beauty is what fits one to to inherit the unfading beauty of eschatological glory with God, which is your inheritance. This unfading beauty consists of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is of great worth, choice, or precious in God's sight. Even as Christ was called choice and precious, and as all the living stones that the saints are were also called choice and precious, this kind of, of virtue is choice and precious. And again, gentleness and a quiet spirit, these are not uniquely female virtues. These are Christian virtues. Jesus was meek and gentle of heart. Jesus did not lift up his voice and cry aloud. Jesus was, Peter just told us, silent, quiet in the face of harsh mistreatment, led as a sheep to the slaughter. Quietness of spirit is a Christian virtue. And gentleness is the fruit of the Holy Spirit for the whole church. Shortly after this text, Peter's going to call all men and women to defend our hope with gentleness and respect. All Christians are to seek to live quiet, peaceable lives. This is the interior beauty of the word made flesh in a life. Of the word made beautiful in a life. And it wins, Peter says, without a word those who are disobedient to the word. Your example, who you are, your being, right, is much more important than what you say. Finally, in verses 4 through 6, the wife is given an example of holy women in the past. And it's difficult to understand the example. Commentators find it cryptic. Um, They hoped in God, the text says, and they adorned themselves with this beauty. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah did to Abraham, we're told. She obeyed him and called him Lord, which here means something like sir. What is curious, and we heard this in the Old Testament lesson, is Sarah says this. She calls Abraham Lord one time. It's in Genesis 18. And she does it in the context of a kind of muttered, under her breath, laughing skepticism about the promise of offspring. It's a very curious choice. And she knows that Abraham has had a less than stellar track record of dealing with her in the marriage, putting her at risk, for example, by passing her off as his sister. So the point is cryptic, but it seems to be this, that Sarah overcame fears and doubts about her husband, and about the promise of God, and nevertheless lived in subjection to Abraham. Again, if you read the patriarchal narratives, you'll see that this is not servile subjection. 
Remember the story in Genesis 21, Sarah insists on the expulsion of Hagar and Ishmael from the household. To Abraham's great distress. And God comes to Abraham and says, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. So submission is perfectly compatible with strong personal agency, with great reciprocity and sharing and mutuality between Abraham and Sarah. Nevertheless, the text tells us she freely submitted to him. And Christian women, these women to whom Peter writes, are her daughters if they do what is right and do not give away to fear. This is another beautiful thing about this passage. These wives are called not to cowering, not to fear, but to courage. Again, throughout this whole passage, at every station of life, subjection is strength. Right? It's Sarah and Abraham kind of strength. Now, if you ask yourself, what is it these wives might have to fear, first and foremost? Well, it's probably the resistance of their unbelieving husbands. Right? And this brings us full circle. These wives have broken with the gods of their husband. They've entered the church where they've had this newfound dignity and liberty. And nevertheless, nevertheless, they're to place themselves without fear in deference and respect toward these husbands. Why? Why? To win them out of their inherited futility into the Christian freedom that they now, as wives and women, enjoy. So all we have here is another beautiful example tailored to wives of the general rule of the whole passage. Right? Doing what Jesus did for us, right? Considering our needs above his own glory to win us. Right? That's what Jesus did. He put our needs above his own status to win us to himself. In that sense, women here are radiant icons of Christ. So that's wives. Now to husbands. Husbands. Now the husbands in view here are Christians. Otherwise Peter would not be addressing them. So this is verse 7. Verse 7. Husbands in the same way. Notice that. Verse 1. Wives in the same way. Verse 7. Husbands in the same way. Sermon title? In the same way. What way, you might be asking? Well, hopefully we know by now. The way of Christ. The way of the cross. He's asking the wives to do something. He's asking the husbands to do something. In the same way. The way of his self-giving service and self-emptying and laying aside of his rights, of placing others above himself. The way of submission in the sense of respectful deference, the way of quietness and gentleness and reverence and holiness. His, Jesus's, is the beautiful life, and thus he's the example that both the wife and the husband, even in their differences, both are called to imitate Christ in the same way. Husbands, in the same way. Be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect. So the word for respect here means honor. 
We've already seen it earlier in this section of the book. Right? We are to honor all men. We are to honor the emperor. So husbands are to honor their wives. It's a startling thing. I mean, to impose this kind of duty on a husband, again, it's unique in the ancient codes because the husband had virtually absolute authority over the wife. But here, Peter says, honor must be shown. And this is not a concession. This is a response to the fact that the wife is an objective image bearer of God with the, with the man. So all of us then in this, in this passage, this broader passage of Peter chapter 2 and 3, all of us, slaves, wives, now husbands, have all been called to show honor in this parent, in this passage, right? Honor every last person. The whole church is addressed. Household servants called to honor their masters. Now husbands to honor their wives. Honor is shown by the husband to what the text calls the weaker vessel. This simply means that in general, women are not as strong as men. Doesn't mean there aren't exceptions to this. It's just a general state. It's not a statement of female emotional vulnerability or anything like that. We all have the gospel treasure in jars of clay. And we're all to seek the inward beauty of an unfading, gentle, quiet spirit. But here, right at this point, due to a disparity in strength, Peter is protecting the woman from abuse. Either verbal abuse or physical abuse. And he's demanding considerate honor from the husband. And this text ends in spectacular fashion. There's an even deeper reason for the honor. The wife is an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. Being an heir means having an inheritance. And inheritance in 1 Peter is eschatological and spiritual. This is not about the fact that your wife shares natural life with you, though that is a blessing and a wonderful thing. Right? Peter has already said you're born into an inheritance, kept in heaven for you. You've been given the gracious gift of eternal life through the Spirit. So this now is a remarkable statement of equality. In ancient Greco-Roman culture, you could never say anything like this. The woman is a living stone in Christ with the husband. She is a joint heir with the husband. Notice she's an heir with the husband, not an heir under the husband. In the inheritance, in the eschaton, in heaven, in the consummation of the gracious gift of life, there are no hierarchies. Right? There's, we heard this in the gospel lesson. There's no marriage. There's no state. There are no church elders. There are no hierarchical authorities. You might think, well, that's great. But that's later. But get this, we have commenced. We're already beginning to live the eschatological life, the heavenly life, the gracious gift of this life. And that's the tension here, right? Where Peter's honoring the way things are on the ground but acknowledging that something new has happened here. Right? 
So honor your wife because she's an heir with you in Christ of the coming inheritance, which is already breaking down the social order defined by male and female, slave and free, Jew and Greek. God is already forging a new family, a new unity. And this way of living, Peter says, curiously, is so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Marital honor and love enables prayer. Now, if you're a a reader of the New Testament, that should echo something for you. Because there's one other place in the New Testament where these two things are brought together. Harmony in marriage and prayer. It's in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is a text which teaches mutual authority. Now, the word authority is used in 1 Corinthians 7. And the text teaches that the man has authority over the woman's body and the The woman has authority over the man's body. So at the central act of marriage, Paul teaches a kind of mutual authority in 1 Corinthians 7. And then he says that that mutual authority in the covenant bond of marriage can be set aside by consent, by mutual agreement, for a time of prayer. For a time of prayer. So we have the same point being made in 1 Peter. The wife and the husband, then, are called in this passage, in their respective ways, to make the word flesh, to live beautiful lives. And there are differences between their their ways and their roles, to be sure, but in this passage, something that needs to be noticed is their ways are profoundly alike. They are spoken of in the same way, right? Wives in the same way. Husbands in the same way. What way? the way of Jesus Christ and the way of the cross. Wives, in the same way, are to win their husbands, even without words. Husbands, in the same way, are to create an atmosphere of honor, of joint heirs praying for the coming heavenly inheritance. We are all then, in Peter's vision, free people, slaves of God, called to this future, this future inheritance that we enjoy jointly. It's an inheritance that all the meek will gain, and they gain it without coercive power. They gain it through participation in the suffering example of Christ. Because it's by his wounds that all of our broken relations are and shall be fully healed. Amen.